Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? What's going on, Mark? My reefing brother. How you doing, man? I'm always you know, really energized and motivated when we have a topic that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I think we're going to get a little uh, riled up and ranty on this one. I have a beer on reserve just mm-hmm. in case. Double, double your pleasure right here. <laughs> I might need it. So we're going to talk about the harm of overdoing your reef aquarium. And we, before we just do some general reef talk, um, we try to come up with a few things that were, were not uh, affected by overdoing it. And that list is very short. And almost guarantee that everyone listening to this is going to be guilty of one or more several um, of these things that we talk about as far as overdoing um, different aspects of the reef aquarium hobby. And we'll describe and discuss at length why there's a harm in doing some of these things. But before we get into it, um, this is probably going to be the last reef therapy before reef stock, March 5th and 6th. Go to reefstock.show for your tickets, find out the raffle prize, learn about our awesome speakers. You know, as a speaker myself, I really um, deliberate who I want to spotlight and feature at reef stocks. And this year, man, goodness, we've had like all the major speakers, but I think we kind of have a a nice new different crop. So we're going to have Sarah Stevens of Butterfly Pavilion talking about her Florida Reef Track Rescue Project Aquarium. Um, She has a collection of some beautiful, some of the healthiest, juiciest Caribbean stony corals I've ever seen outside of diving. Um, Just a short drive away from where I live right now. We're going to have Mike Sensky of Aquarium Design Group in Houston. Uh, He has installed, him and his company has installed about 2,000 aquariums over the last 20 years. Um, him and his brother Jeff are world-renowned aquascapers, and they both participate in lots of judging competitions and aquascape offs and things like that. And then uh, Paula Carlson is uh, director of exhibits or something like that at the Dallas World Aquarium, and she has the very unique privileges, a privilege of having handled some of the rarest, most exotic fish ever. Um, one of the that sticks out to me is she told me she got one of the first purple tangs ever to put on display back in the 80s. And she's worked with sea dragons and um, wrought iron butterfly fish. And did I mention sea dragons? And they have a flashlight fish exhibit at the Dallas World Aquarium. I remember back it's in the so 90s, cool. there was a write-up about the Dallas Aquarium. Late 90s, maybe early 2000s, but they mm-hmm. had a Lord Howe exhibit. And I was yes. like, I got to get to Dallas, man. <laughs> like a, like so a I was public there last aquarium. Year. That, <laughs> yeah. I was there last year. They have wild latezonados clownfish. They have um, a pair of large wild conspics. Um, uh, the colmrass, chorus picta, uh, kind of a showy fish. Not colorful, but very showy. Um, and yeah, so we, these three speakers are going to be awesome today. I just shared the little giant list of... Uh, Raffle prizes, not even all of them, because they, they, a lot of them come in towards the end or, you know, right as we're setting up the raffle, other companies come up like, Hey, you want something for the raffle? So, you know, between the raffle, the, uh, the frags, the speakers, um, and just getting to see everybody again after two years, cause it is going to be awesome. You know, and there's some other shows that, uh, spread their energy across a few shows, a few events every year, but we skipped last year and we're every year. So we got to put two years of energy and effort into this year. And, uh, man, I'm just really excited to get back in the, in the swing of things. It'll almost be normal again. 
Yeah, if it wasn't my brother's 50th birthday that same weekend, I would have probably uh, surprised you and just flown in and just been like, what's up? Because <laughs> it, it looked, been fun surprise, looked interesting and fun to go to. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, next year you tell your brother he's going to have to go it alone because I think you're uh, <laughs> definitely on the short list of speakers for 2023. So, uh, so yeah, that's going to be the, the short infomercial here for Reefstock. Just go to reefstock.show and on this interesting top-level domain, but reefstock.show will take you to uh, our landing page for the event. And that's what I've been up to mostly. Nice. Uh, me? So you told us uh, about a lot of aquarium work you were doing last week. I'm sure you've got some follow-ups this week. Yeah, you know, the, the one just today, um, you know, uh, I know you and I kind of differ on things like substrates and, and some of that stuff. Uh, I like, I don't like all the dead rock, dead sand crap, and I think it definitely contributes to the ugly. So I, I've i always been moving live rock from tank to tank to tank to tank, right? So this tank starting off with no, you know, existing live rock. I mean, I did grab some crap from my existing tanks and throw it in there, but... I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to seed it with some microbial life. And I just thought it was funny because it's like I I hit up I, um, Indo-Pacific Sea Farms in Hawaii. Uh, Gerald, Mr. Gerald, he's a legend, right? And mm-hmm. you get this box of just the kitchen sink of micro. You know, you got spaghetti worms, amphipods, copepods. I mean, there's all kinds of crap to dump in your tank. He always gives you a little bit extra, like, he, you know, I, little strombus, micro-grazing snails, hermit crabs running around. And it was like- Indo-Pacific sea farms definitely um, contributed to the diversification of what we consider a cleanup crew. Um, they were offering, you know, core line and kind of like not live sand, but like live mud and all kinds of different packages of, you know, the things that they could harvest from the reef to help diversify your reef tank in meaningful ways. Um, so I know a lot of people probably have forgotten who they are, but yeah, Gerald Hesslinger, Indo Pacific Sea Farms. Is it still, is the website still ipsf.com? Yeah, yeah. There and you go. <laughs> I, for the price that, uh, you know, other vendors sell you a jar of copepods. I mean, you literally get a box of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it got me thinking, you know, old man, you know, grumpy old men thing that we do sometimes. It's like, that's, this is what it was all about, man. Like opening a box of just life. Like, you know, he threw in a bunch of different macroalgae, which I have no, I didn't need, but, you know, Ogo, that kind of stuff that my tangs are just chowing down right now. And, and it's so much more fun than getting a jar of copepods for the same price. Um, but yeah, you know, so I dumped that in. Um, on an unrelated note, it was kind of funny. Uh, my range hood above my stove has LED lights in it. And the ballasts uh-huh. keep burning out. And then I have to call the vendor. And then, you know, they're like, well, you know, we only sell ballasts to repair, authorized repair people. I'm like, just send me the ballast. It has quick disconnects on it. A driver, you mean? Driver, sorry, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, every 10 months, this little driver burns out. And, and I tried to contact them again. And I don't know, maybe COVID, you know, staffing shortage. I can't, I didn't hear from them. So finally, I was like, I wonder if I can just find a better driver, you know, like, and, you know, all of us reefers, like, we're familiar with like the Meanwell brand, right? And they're pretty bomb proof. And so <laughs> I just looked up the specs. And I mean, like, if you look at this thing, I don't know. I guess the podcast listener, but this is like something you probably find in a Neptune Apex, right? It's not. 
it's like it's terrible um but uh i found a mean wheel driver with the right spec so i'm just gonna wire that in and it's just funny how the reef keeping hobby you know it's like oh i feel perfectly comfortable putting that in a dc power (laughs) yeah and 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 wiring up some leds with a new driver you know i'm like ah and i i feel i mean check with me in a year but i bet this mean wheel driver is gonna run much longer than whatever this thing is (laughs) yeah for sure um anyway I, I didn't mean to dog ape uh, Neptune, but it this looks exactly like the thing that burned out in my EV832 that I was really mm-hmm. pissed off about that, you know, on eBay is like $2. So you saw the uh, the post I did, I don't know, maybe a week or two weeks back about the smart CO2 controller. Yeah, yeah. South dude. Korean company? Dude. Yeah. Some I, I was, not sometimes, most of the times you see these glamour shots of of products or, or digital renders and then you get it in your hands and it's like really plasticky or there's shoddy construction or there's just a lot of things missing. The ECI and you is the opposite. It is packed like, like a smartphone. It's just like all foam inserts with like a little carbon fiber inlay. And I'm looking at all this packaging. I'm like, dude, you could probably drop the price 20 bucks <laughs> if you just put everything in a brown box. Right? Like I yeah. get the experience or whatever, but then the enclosure is machined aluminum. Oh, wow. What the or heck? a CO2 having... controller. It's a little more than that. I'll get yeah. into it. But it's machined aluminum with a detachable magnetic screen with an optional USB-C cable. Here's here's another thing that's driving me crazy. I, I've i talked about... Dude, I get a, I get a lot of emails about um, custom cables. I think we talk, we've talked about those a few times. Yeah. But from the early episodes and cables.com, for those of you asking about custom uh, cable lengths, power cords, and colors, and right angles. And I'll do the same thing for USB-C, USB micro. I have all these little connectors to get a right angle. Um, and there's a left hand and a right hand um, to just get that... that cabling just just nice they included a USB-C cable with a right angle on it so that you know when you mount your the remote screen mm-hmm. you can get real clean wiring coming out of it i'm like dude who does that um so so yeah it's like so it's more than a, it's um there's two models but we'll talk about the big one uh comes with a, a regulator and it's just a, the first stage and then it goes into the machine and the second stage is inside and I opened it up real quick and saw that it's an optical bubble counter. So they're counting bubbles and uh, approximating that to uh, cubic centimeters of CO2, which is, you know, a real measure of gas being added to your tank. Um, and it's got an added pH uh, BNC connection. Uh, and instead of doing it as software, there's a hardware uh adjustment screw for ph4 and for ph7 remember the old time like you know hardware screws uh american marine pinpoint ph you know i haven't seen one of those in forever except the really cheapest chinese ones which only have like a a ph7 little screw but man dude when i opened it up it was so much electronics inside and i'm like yes that's how you do signal processing you know to get a nice clean signal so i haven't installed it yet but man just unboxing the thing and then pulling it out. Like you could club somebody to death with the machine <laughs> and then go plug it in. It's cast aluminum. I'm like, man, we have so many pseudo, pseudo deluxe 
um, items in the reef aquarium hobby that are just built like with just the cheapest materials and they're super lightweight and they just look like if you dropped them barely, they would break. You know what I'm talking about. And just receiving this product that is going to carry a re very reasonable price, you know, probably around five to six hundred dollars. That's the regulator. That's the CO2 like smart control with programming and like this really nice, um, uh, you know, pH controller. Even the probe was nice, right? That's another thing. I've gotten some pH monitors from some other up, up and coming companies that come in tiny little packages with these smallest, shortest pH probe I've ever seen in my freaking life. And I can't wait till it goes out so I can pair it up with like a much better probe. And it's just seeing this thing a little bit overdone, like they overdid it. And it's so rare for me to open something up and like, oh, you could have scaled this back a little bit. You could have toned it down and I'd still be very, very happy with what you sent. And so I haven't installed it yet, but I'll be set installing one on a planet tank to control CO2 into a planet aquarium. Then I'll be installing another one on a calcium reactor. But I do have a little conundrum because I've been running the, uh, the aqua vitro divisions element CA calcium reactor. Yeah. I've been running it old school. And it works and it's tuned. And by old school, I mean, like, I just set the bubble rate and I set the feet rate and I measure the CO2 coming out. And I, I know that's enough. And it's running perfect about six, 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 seven coming out um, on the pH. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to upend this whole thing. So I'm like, yeah, I have a couple of tanks I could use a calcium reactor. So I need to get a new calcium reactor because I'm dosing so much in a couple of my peninsula tanks. Like, mm, I think one of them would be very suitable for a yeah. calcium reactor using this machine. So, yeah, it's just that device along with uh, you and I both constantly searching for internet um, aquarium content, reef aquarium content of all kinds. I see so many build threads. I see so few comparatively like finished tank threads, like show me the beautiful reef or just show me the buildup of the corals and how you're aquascaping it and how you're grooming it over time. Um, we just put out a video, an hour before this recording, of Evan just did a whole nice rescape of his tank and just curated all the corals that were growing on top of each other. That's what I want to see more. Now, before we get into the overdoing its, you know, side of this, this conversation, Mark and I are the biggest gadgeteers. Oh, yeah. You know, our our old relationship, our the, the beginnings of a relationship is what fueled that was the embryo for reef builders and talking about new aquarium gear. Um but man, if you look at all my sumps, there's five things. You yeah, know, there was the great pulse start versus probe start ballast debate for metal halides, you know, and then compare that to uh, electronic ballast and mm -hmm. And, you know, we turned our noses at e-ballast because they underpowered radiums and made them look nasty, you know. And <laughs> um, so we are total nerds when it comes to gadgets. And, yeah, I mean, my – I, I dog Neptune earlier, but, I mean, I love I love them too, right? Like, my, I've got so much crap automated, it's – ridiculous oh yeah no you're in right you that is that is your lifeline to your tank when you're gone yeah. you know you can make some adjustments but we love aquarium gadgets for specific purposes but i feel like there's a machismo involved with having every bell and whistle and you see i feel like more effort being put into the tank build thread or the tank build video series than the actual aquarium. And I get it. I totally get it. Some people are into the gear and for them, it's just kind of a reason, 
you know, to have all these toys. You know, I understand that there's, you know, people who love cars and driving them and people who love cars and just want to be, uh, you know, what do they call them? Tool, tool heads or monkey ranchers or I don't know what they call it. I'm sure somebody's screaming silently in the background right now, but uh, gearheads, you know, they just want to work on the engine and they want the engine to hum really well, but they don't necessarily want to drive the car. And I see a little bit too much of that. And I'm not saying there's room for both of it, but what is most popular tends to affect the direction that other people take with their tanks as well. So if they see that all the popular videos and all the popular threads are, are you know, building tanks with just all the stuff going on, they think that that's what a reef tank is supposed to be. I think, I think the influencer YouTube celebrity thing contributes and I'm not, I, I don't want this to come off, um, you know, crapping on them. Cause I, I don't mean that, but I, I think if you're a YouTube person and you, let's say you've, you're like me, you've got like, maybe, you know, I have, you know, what, four tanks with corals in them and you're you this podcast. You had two. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had more <laughs> in the past, but yeah, I was, I was on a downward turn and simplifying my life. And then this, uh, this happened, but, but yeah. Um, if you're just feeling the pressure to constantly produce content, right. And in your case, you have a ton of aquariums and there's always something interesting happening and there's always a new product to review and you can run five different calcium reactors on five different tanks. But like somebody that lives in a condo that's a YouTuber that has two tanks probably feels pressured sometimes like, ah, what am I going to talk about this week? And so what they do is they go out and they're like, hey, I just installed a, a Kalkwasser reactor. Hey, this week I installed an ozone reactor. I installed a UV sterilizer. And and I think that they're looking for interesting things to produce content around. But the viewer is like, oh, man, I need an ozone reactor. I need an ozone unit. I need a UV sterilizer. I need a Nielsen reactor or a Kalkwasser reactor. I need a calcium reactor. I need an automatic water tester. I need an automatic you know, I need water a changer, controller, guardian, and all that stuff. Yeah, it paints uh, a picture for somebody that's a consumer of like, oh, you know. And I don't think that the YouTube persons that are making these videos, I don't think that 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 it's their intent. They're just exploring things and making interesting videos, and they, you know, they're they're trying to create something new and interesting for you to watch, right? But it it creates that disparity of, you know, because the most boring YouTube channel would be me. You know, I know everybody's asking for pictures of my tank. I'm boring. I don't, I don't switch crap out on my tanks, right? I don't. My sumps are boring. And that's actually yeah. what I plan to talk about at Reef, uh, at um, Aquashella this weekend. Is this, I'm going to show sump after sump, just bare bones with just what needs to work. And then I'll show the tank full of ha happy, healthy, thriving corals. So I think we can just go down the entire list and discuss the, you know, the things that are getting overdone and it's basically everything, you know, and this was one of the things I've kind of you know, regretted about the hobby since I've ever been into it is that there's not enough women like really reefing, you know, and right now they're following the leads of all the men content creators. This would be a very different hobby if it was a balanced or female dominated. We would not have all these toys. There'd probably be a lot more additives and special foods and, um, you know, things to nurture more and less to tinker with. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, and that's as close to that line as I'm willing to walk up to. <laughs> I, I was going to say something, yeah, that bothers me on Instagram, but I'll let it go. <laughs> yeah. So let, let's start out with RO units. For sure. So here's the thing. Everything we're talking about, for sure, there's an application and a time and a place and a reef tank that needs it. But it's not across the board. And that is the problem. People are taking, you know, these benefits from everything and thinking that all of it applies to their reef tank. And RO, RO units is one of those things, man. I remember being super poor and all I could afford was a tap water purifier. And I got a replacement cartridge like three or four times a year, right? It took me three months to save up for that 30 or $40 replacement cartridge. When you're a teenager, you know, that's a, that's a lot of money. So I dreamed of having an RO unit. And I remember finally getting into it and kind of getting more in industry and going with that three stage and then going with that four stage and then going with that post stage and then the DI separate. Oh, don't forget know, the silicon, resin. The silicate buster and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, then the back flush valve, then the shutoff valve, then the pressure gauge. And next thing you know... You've got, you know, just this weird, you know, home scale wastewater treatment plant. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. Oh, I forgot the booster pump. Booster pumps are actually super dope. <laughs> um, but yeah, you see folks like just going crazy about it and they don't really necessarily know what's in their water, you know, and they'll have a TDS meter before and after, but you don't really know what's coming out. You know, all you need to remove is, you know, chlorine, chloramine nitrate, phosphate, silicates, a tough one, and then heavy metals. That's it. But, you know, your your raw tap water is not raw. <laughs> it is so thoroughly treated. Um, and I see these people just go crazy trying to remove every last thing, then to take a bag of basically the entire periodic table of elements to add to the water. <laughs> just like, what are you doing, yeah. man? So I've come full circle. I am, you know, blessed of having very cleaner than usual source water. Um, but I think in a lot of places that I, that I would live, I would probably stick mostly with the carbon because I'm in a position right now where even after just all the carbon doesn't take out silicates, um, I can get up to two PPM silicates in my feed water, probably why I grow a lot of sponges. And um, oh, I forgot where I was, was going to go with that. I'd probably, yeah, I would probably just use carbon, but even if it has some phosphates or some nitrates, you know, I don't have algae problems. I'm over here dosing nitrates to the tanks, you know, every couple of days. And so it just seems like a fool's errand to strip everything from your water only to add it all back. Yeah, I, I recently did an ICP test on my tap water because uh, whenever I was filling up the, the bath for my kid, it had a really strong smell. And I'm like, this could just be chlorine I'm smelling, but it had a metallic kind of something to it that made me curious. Plus it was um, a weird, uh, I don't want to scare people. It wasn't like discolored, but like, you know, big white bathtub, right? It wasn't blue. It kind of had like a light uh, turquoise tint to it, right? Uh, it ended up mm -hmm. being, um, uh, well, the, the, the water company was like, yeah, we've got some manganese from some upwelling at the lake, right? Which I'm sure my, nice. I know my, my gonioporas are like, <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, but I, but I, I think I shared my ICP test with you. Like it's, it's, it's actually pretty good. Um, and I, I get about uh, 40 TDS. Now this is a very personalized topic in the sense that if you live on a farm, 
you've got, you're living on a well with 500 TDS, like your mileage is going to be different, right? But and I it's going to vary a lot throughout the year based on rainfall and temperature yeah. and the solubility of whatever's in your local soils. I'm not saying but you're you're, go, you're yeah go ahead. I'm not saying either go like me and just use carbon or go all out yeah. and have a wastewater treatment plant. But I'm saying like those two canisters and a membrane and you know you're 98 percent of the way there you want more efficiency boom throw a booster pump on there you want to um you know in, in extend the life of your membrane put a back flush valve on there but beyond that you are not getting you know substantially cleaner water yeah, what you're not seeing, except for maybe guys that have been in the hobby a long time and start to kind of question why they're replacing two DI cartridges or whatever, you see people with that shotgun approach, right? They're getting that seven-stage unit without even any critical thinking involved because that's what YouTube told them to buy or there, there's not a, well, let me see what my, how bad my water really is and then adjust, right? I mean, any, I was guilty of this in the beginning too. Uh, all I could afford was the sediment block, carbon block, and the RO, right? From, and that was from Spectapure. And I felt there was a time that's all anyone used. Yeah, but I and felt like a awesome loser because I didn't have my <laughs> DI add on and the silicate bust, whatever. Like I didn't have the cool, you know, pimped out unit, right? I was the broke college student with just, but in the end, that's really all I use now, right? To your point, like that's all I freaking need. Um, mm -hmm. The only upgrade I might do is get one that has the two. And again, this is way overdoing it. I'm guilty of it. But I, you know, now that they have ones that produce over 100 gallons per hour with like a two to one wastewater ratio versus a four to one. If I ever have some spare cash laying around, I may do that just because I get my water faster, you know, first world mm -hmm. problem. I don't want to wait for... So, funny side story is I've been using one mechanical, four carbon blocks for a few years. Um, and that's what I use for all the saltwater tanks. I set up on a set, just an RO membrane after that to, set, to fill a separate uh, vat. That water is only used on my freshwater tanks so I can soften the water and for mixing up my calcium buffer and alkalinity yeah. or in magnesium. So I have an RO line and I have a brand new um, Arca, like crazy 90, 500 gallon per day RO unit. It's really crazy. I haven't set it, installed it yet. I've kind of put it in place, but I use the RO water for mixing up my chemicals and for my freshwater tanks. Well, and that's it. That's what I do. You know, not to get on, on um, not to get preachy, but you live in Colorado and they have water shortages. So the fact that you mm -hmm. did the analysis and figured out that the water that you're getting, you can do a zero wastewater solution for your reef tanks is, is commendable, right? I mean, like if you're living out in Colorado and you're doing a four to one wastewater ratio in a place that where people are, you know, short on water i'm not i'm not trying to harp on those people like they're trying to take care of the reef tank but like maybe you know take a second look at that equation and see if you could get by with something more efficient or yeah maybe like exactly what you're describing maybe you just need some good carbon blocks to remove heavy metals and chlorine and and keep trucking um yeah and by far if you have a two or three three or four stage ro the most mileage you can get after that is a booster pump 
Yeah. You know, if you've ever seen your water trickling when it's cold and you just, you know, you're literally waiting a day for 50 gallons to show up, you're throwing away 200 gallons. Man, that booster pump is really just, that is the biggest upgrade you can make to an RO unit. But um, yeah, I think that's enough on, on the ROs because we have a lot more to get into. Um, I think the sumps and the plumbing is going to be a fun one. This is, <laughs> this is one. Now I want to preface this by saying I no one was more excited than me to see a renaissance of tricky, fancy sumps um, starting at about 10 years ago. I mean, yeah. for the longest times, man, sumps were just three chambered boxes. That's what they were. You had a skimmer section, you had an algae scrubber section, and then you had your, your pump section. <clears throat> and I love seeing some pump, some sump designs incorporating, you know, uh, styling, you know, I like uh, seeing the rim around the sides. I like seeing lids and things are getting a little bit more enclosed. Um, I like the heater holders. It's nice to, to put those in a spot and know where yeah. they're going to stay. Um, it, you know, the Vertex iSump sure did look cool with all those, uh, you know, small tubing going all around for your probe and for your dosing lines. Um, but we're seeing too many $200 sumps being sold for $500 just because they have bracing probe holders and dosing line holders. Like, yeah. do you know how much that is to add on? <laughs> it's like 50 bucks. And can, and I you just, can put it wherever you want. It's not built in. So I have a, I'm not even going to name the brand. I have a name brand sump. And can I just add that? Yes, they make them look tricked out. But again, there's no critical thinking. They put the probe holders in the skimmer chamber where micro bubbles from the skimmer could potentially impact your probes. And then they put the dosing holders in like the least turbulent area of your sump versus having you dosing your two part in like a high flow turbulent area. And I'm like, come on, man, like this is your job. You had one job to build a sump, right? And you should think about every little thing. And then they make the return pump chamber so small that even the slightest variation causes your ATO to go nuts. Right? I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. How come but we haven't seen sumps with a built-in float valve holder? Yeah. There, they are some sumps that yeah, have Red a, a small has float them. valve. But first of all, those float valves are junk. Yeah. They are the kind of float valves that give float valves a bad name. Yeah, bad I've never rep. seen such small float valves until I saw them started being included with sumps. You know, of course you're going to have problems with something that fits in your pocket. <laughs> you know, you need a big float and maybe a bigger, you know, diameter tubing to prevent, you know, clogging and stuff. You know, so it's, you're right. There's this lack of critical thinking into the accoutrement that are actually added to the sump. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't get it. It's you had one job. You're, you're a company that makes sumps <laughs> do better. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, all right, so the Red Sea sump and the water box sump comes with a sectional divider. Never occur to me to use that ever, ever, ever. Oh, where you want to have a refugium, for example? Mm-hmm. And I do love sumps with a built-in tiny ATO section because that's where I put my uh, float switch for my DC controllable protein skimmer so they can empty their waste inside of there. And then I've got a big old container to do some nice wet skimming. And people always ask, oh, how do you get it out of there? It's like, um, there's a, a fluid transfer pumps, like 15 bucks, 20 bucks on Amazon. 
They do the job amazingly. But for me, that's, you know, that two gallons or three gallons of that reservoir offers is way better spent used for collecting skimmate and turning it into, you know, a skimmate collector than uh, an AT, a tiny ATO reservoir that you're going to have to top off every few, you know, twice a week anyway. That is not yeah. the point of ATOs. If you're going to have an ATO, have a freaking big one. It's like $13 to buy a tall, skinny trash can, a uh, plastic trash can that you can get anywhere. <laughs> you know, and that's going to, that's going to let you coast for a solid month, you yeah. know, without getting into too much trouble. Yeah. I also don't, so, I'm not so, a yeah. big filter sock guy and I, every sump in the world now has filter socks and it's frustrating if you want one without one that they're, they're far mm -hmm. and few between. Um, and then, uh, well, take the water box tank. I just bought the filter sock holders. I cut them out of course, but they're like, two inches below the top of the sump. And I'm thinking, and so, you know, you're getting all that splashing and salt spray right up at the top. Whereas I'm used to having the water level like halfway down the glass wall. So that that's where all your noise is it. happening. Yeah. And and yeah. then, you know, you got to clean your sump walls, but your stand stays clean. So I was like, hey, why is, why is nobody talking about that? But Anyway, now we're now we're complaining about sumps and not overdoing it, but you know, tangents happen. Well, no, no, this is part of it. Overdoing yeah. it, but without critical thought as to why you're doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You know, there's again, I'll, I'm gonna say it several times. There is a, a use case application for almost everything that we're ranting about. Right. And I love some some tricky sumps, but man, you just you don't really need all of this stuff driving the price, you know, up from forty dollars for a forty breeder at a dollar a gallon sale up to, you know, four hundred dollars because it's got a couple baffles and a you know filter sock holder and a couple probe holders. Like and just like you mentioned, they're putting the probes in the wrong place and they're putting dosing lines in the wrong place, and you're just much better off getting a big glass box and using some magnets and doing some of that stuff yourself. Agreed. For sure. And speaking um, of plumbing, <coughs> I, I like tricked out plumbing if that's like you're going for the attractiveness of it. But I also feel like there's a, there's a little room there where people are replacing perfectly good plumbing, you know, like they get a red sea tank or a water box tank and then they cut it all out and put tricked out plumbing in. And if their goal was like, well, you know, I like to keep my coral organisms with this kind of methodology and that requires me to have a manifold for this or that, like, okay, all right, cool, you know, but I mean, you just need a drain and a return and, uh, you know, so as long as you're doing it because you think it's fun to glue PVC and have cool colored pipes, that's fine by me, but like, as long as we're all on the same page that it's like you didn't technically make the system more effective at keeping animals alive, right? So, um, I, if you have one tank and you you you, you want to have a lot of dials, right? You want to feel like you're in a control room. That, that's that's one yeah. thing. You know, I know you have something to say about controller boards, but not at the expense of having a nice reef tank, right? So these bells and whistles, they're they're fun. They really are fun to look at. And some of them really do help, but people spend way too much time, um, and by people, I mean men, <laughs> just talking about all this gear. And I'm over here, you know, like the, you know, the, the deacon of the church of reef gear. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm over here harping because you're not, you know, you're spending all your time, you know, talking about the differences between different products, but not really getting the results from it. 
That that's my challenge. And so same thing with the plumbing. I find nothing wrong with the plumbing that's included with the Cade, the Red Sea, the water box. Water box has an optional uh, manifold if you want. That for my taste, I never put a manifold in the return pump. I want a separate pump to handle yeah. that. So my return flow is always constant. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, changing out the plumbing for plumbing's sake, that's not cool. That's not cool. But another thing is just, here's a, you know, I've seen so many build threads and build video series and I see people like it's, it's, <laughs> they either do it what either one way they, they have no unions, no true union ball valve. So nothing is replaceable or they have way too many, right? One of my biggest pet peeves currently is seeing a Vectra that has included, you know, quick disconnect. And a few other pumps are doing that too, where yeah. it all comes in uh, a biz, a Delta E flow, they come with their own uh, unions, right? And you see the quick disconnect on the pump and then right after is a true union ball valve. And then that's plumbed into the rim of the sump with another true union ball valve on top of that. I'm like, dude, how, how much disassembly do you think you're going to be doing on this tank? Yeah. You know, I'm not, this is not a humble brag, but when I'm done plumbing, I barely even check for a leak because I have so few connections. I, I don't have leaks, you know, it's yeah. so rare. The only thing that is going to leak on me is um, something needs to be screwed in a little tighter, like a bulkhead or a, or a threaded fitting, um, or is a crappy bulkhead that I might have to replace, you know, start with the stock. And um, I've done that with some external overflow kits. But other than that, there's just not that many connections. You know, I'll give it a quick glance, fully expecting not to see any drips. Yeah, I, um, I get pretty lucky with knock on wood with plumbing, but I think it's also because I don't complicate it. You know, I, I see some of these guys who have like $400 worth of plumbing with every 90 degree elbow and, you know, and I think, okay, you know, the more you have to fit stuff, the more you're going to run into. And then, yeah, quick disconnects, O-rings, all that. So that's I, another thing. They'll, they'll, they will buy custom PVC and lots of true union ball valves. And then there's like four 90 degree elbows on their return pump going back killing to the tank, the <laughs> killing all the back pressure. I'm like, yo, you ever heard of 45s, 22s, man, 22. I have 22s. I had a special order of that thing that, you know, you want to get really serious about flow, get yourself some 45s and some 22s and some spa flex. Ace hardware usually has all the different sizes. Nothing looks cleaner than just the fewest number of fittings that required to go from the pump to, you know, wherever it needs to end up. And there I mean, was a, a little time spa where flex. spa flex was the thing to do. And now you never see anybody use spa flex. Oh, every, every, I always have, spa, I have spa flex on hand. Yeah. I, it just, it's one of those things, you know, you can, you can try to dry fit everything and get it exactly perfect. And then when you glue it in, it doesn't quite fit, man, you have a little spa flex, boom, there's your, you know, inch or two of uh, uh, wiggle room. And, you know, so here's the thing. Um, the, the case for Schedule 80. Schedule 80 is really de designed for high-pressure applications. You know, public aquariums should totally be, you know, using cleaner and primer and special tools to make sure everything's seated 100% properly, and they should be using Schedule 80. Um, but it's for high-pressure applications. And, you know, so in some regards, it will reduce vibration. You know, but our pumps are so quiet now. That's not even like a concern unless you're still using a mag drive, but you probably shouldn't, you know, you're probably not using a mag drive on a custom plumbing install, but you know what else reduces evaporation? Non-rigid tubing, right? So silicone tubing used in a couple places is cool, but SpaFlex will do the same thing, you know, absorbing a vibration instead of passing it along to everything in the system.
Yeah. I love me some spot flex, man. It just makes every plumbing kit uh, set up just that much smoother and that much easier for, for small adjustments. And you know what? Um, a lot of times when I first install something, I won't put two union ball valves because I know I'm going to get in there one day. I'm going to cut it open and then I'll put the true union ball valve where it made sense to make the cut to access the thing. Right. But again, we have yeah. so many pumps with quick disconnects. Um, it just, it's just not an issue. Not the, an issue. the only thing I do like about uh, sometimes using unions when you like quick disconnects, when you don't need quick disconnects is when you're trying to line pipes up. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so on the vertical pieces, for example, like let's say you have two L's that need to meet. Now there's no good example. There's no reason for that. Or, but just hypothetically speaking, like it allows you to loosen those quick disconnects and swivel the pipe so that they meet perfectly and then tighten them down. So right there. That with makes you. sense. Like that makes sense. Like, flex will also do that. Yeah, that's true. But here's another one. You don't need true union ball valves everywhere. You can yeah. use a single union. You don't have to have that ball valve on your drain, yeah. right? You drain the tank out, let it keep draining, and then just get a towel when you open up that union and, uh, you know, catch that water and you're good to go. It's going to be like a teaspoon's worth of water. <laughs> and those things are not cheap when you add them all up. Hold the on. The true union ball valve is probably like five times the cost of just a single union. It's just yeah. a regular union. Yeah. I'll be right back. Absolutely. Someone's calling me. If you want to pause, All right, so he's going to take can, a call. You can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've harped on Brock a little bit, right? And uh, oh man, I feel so lonely now that Mark stepped away for a moment. Um, that's another thing. People are spending a lot of energy. We we talked about this in the last session. Putting a lot of energy into the making their rock look a certain way, and I feel like if your rockscape looks really awesome that is going to take away some of the spotlight from your actual corals. But in this case, there's too much rock. We're talking about too much rock. You know, that, that is much less of a problem today than it used to be. There used to be tanks with just so much rock that it was very hard for flow to get to every corner of the rock or get through the rock. And that's where all your detritus would build up. And that's where all your pests would be. And um, so we see a lot less problem with the rock, but... I see a lot of rock in people's sumps. I see a lot of rock in people's sumps. And I started the coral tables here at the studio with a few token pieces of live rock for each one. You know, some of them had corals growing on them. But over time, as I ran out of room and I didn't really see the need, the rock was always the place where pests grew, right? It was really easy to remove Raptasia or Vermitids or algae patches from the sides of the tank. Or if you have sand, you know, that's also another easy one to remove them from. But having rock in your sump is like having a big breathing organism, right? So it's killing the flow, it's catching detritus, but all that bacterial colonization, all that detritus, um, it is breathing. It's always breathing. And when it's breathing, it's exhaling CO2 and it's dropping your pH by increasing the carbonic acid of your water. Mark, you're back. Yeah, sorry. A uh, little family uh, no, I should, I should emergency. No, it's all right. Keep, keep um, trucking. So I was just talking about people having too much rock. And in the last, in, you know, in the last session, we talked about, you know, people putting too much effort into their rockscapes, stealing the show yeah. from the corals. And people used to have way too much rock. But where I see people have too, too much rock now is in their sumps. 
right? There's not too, we don't see the same issue of people just over rocking the inside of their tank, but uh, putting unnecessarily piles of rock in their sump in an effort to increase biological capacity. And I just, I don't think bacteria need your help. And all that rocking your sump is actually doing you more harm than good. Well, and this goes with uh, biomedia too, right? Whether it's the ceramics or, um, or, or you know, some people use the pond uh, filter material, the pond matrix, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, dude, there's plenty of surface area in your tank and in your rocks. And if you like sand, sand or your pipes, there's plenty of area for bacteria. Now, denitrification, I can kind of see where you're trying to create some anoxic zones. And a lot of the new rock is kind of dense. So I get it a little bit, but um, I don't know. It's um, it, To your point, I think it's a little bit overkill. And I'm kind of guilty of that right now because I was harvesting the uh, Chato and Calerpa out of my sump. And I, I forgot that when I set this tank up, I had leftover rock that I didn't know what to do with. And I threw it in my sump. And it's just covered in... Uh, and freaking Valonia and nasty crap. And this is literally what I was saying. Yeah. It's uh, just... you know, I started the, the, the cold oh, okay. tables with, you know, a few token pieces of rock. That's where all the pests grew. Mm-hmm. That's where all the Valonia, sponge, Aptasia, planaria, hair algae patches. They were always in the rock. They don't grow in the coral, right? The coral's alive. There's nothing's going to grow on the coral, maybe a tiny bit on the base. But that's where, that's the everybody's reservoir of, of pests, right? So everybody's addressing what they can see in the tank, but not what's left over in our overflow box. That's true. And what's, you know, all the extra rock that's happening in their sump. So on my 150-gallon fish tank that gets fed very generously, I've got two small Brightwell bricks. You know, they're, I don't know, an inch thick, uh, you know, basically a a foot uh, square. One of them I broke in half so it would fit better in the sump. But I have two, they're not even, you know, like wet-dry. They're just sitting next to the protein skimmer where the protein skimmer just blows them on them all the time. But that's it for a very, you know, not a very, but a a heavy fish load. Yeah. More, and that gets fed way more than you would feed even like a 300-gallon tank. Yeah, I just laugh. I don't laugh in a mocking way. I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's just these build threads where they do use a substrate and they have a ton of rock and then they set up like bricks in the sump. And I'm like, well, is that Dude, for some yeah, special so bacteria no. that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just forgot, um, going back to the plumbing, is the flow rate through the aquarium. People have, you know, we, again, we talked about this, about uh, return outlets. You know, my three-foot tank has two return outlets. Like, I only want one return outlet on my six-foot tank. Yeah. You know, I only got one return outlet on my water box and my Red Sea. Why does my three-foot, 75-gallon tank that actually holds 55 gallons of water, why does it have two outlets? You know, and the overflow box, it comes with so many drains, and you just, you should never be pushing that much water. This is not aquaculture. You're not raising food fish with, you know, a pound of fish per gallon, a pound of fish per gallon, right? Yeah. And that's how the, a lot of tanks are treated. And that's actually really matters, right? Because you're driving your pump a lot harder, which is going to inject heat into your aquarium, use more energy, but most of all, cause more, a lot more noise from the splashing into the overflow box, down the drain, and into your sump. And for me, the, the, the easiest fix is just to have a reasonable amount of water flow going through it. And for me, 4X is the max. I never even can think about it, right? You just kind of eyeball it and you're like, well, oh, that, that seems like enough. 
But, uh, you know, a lot of overflow boxes, especially these external overflow kits, you know, why does a, you know, a large overflow box have two 1.5 inch drains? You know, like how much water do you think you need to be pumping through? So I plug up the holes on my external overflow boxes as well. And now I'm always down to two, right? One for the primary drain, one for the emergency. And that's all she wrote. Uh, you know, one of the, one of our listeners made a great comment about pipe sizing and doing continuous siphon drains. And it got me thinking when, when they give you these giant standpipes, these large diameter drains to the point that if you're a two X guy, right? Two time turnover, you have to close that gate valve, like almost fully closed to create a siphon. And that creates all kinds of problems and it's hard to level it out. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and he made a comment, he or she uh, made a comment about that. I was like, man, that's actually a really good point. Like, would your experience be different if you had like smaller diameter standpipes that you were trying to um, create a drain, you know, a continuous siphon drain with like a 2x flow? I'm with you. I've always been low flow. I The one area where if you are into growing macroalgae in your sump to combat, you know, ammonium and nitrate consumption or whatever, I do notice that, you know, like like other organisms, the, the Calerpa and the Chato do like flow. So sometimes you, you might be in, inclined to not go crazy 10x, but you might pump up your flow a little bit so that your uh, macro algae scrubber doesn't just get inundated with like cyano and other nasties. Like I, I've seen like um, right. people struggle to grow stuff when the flow is too low. But beyond that, uh, now that we have all these great types of flow pumps for in the tank, right? Everything from gyres and vortex and Nero's and they're all Nero's, great. Don't forget those Nero's. Yeah, I like actually, I've got one that I really like, the Nero 3. But um, yeah, you don't need, I mean, back in the day, I think we went big, fl- big turnover because we relied on it heavily for flow because the only other thing we had to work with were like maxi-jets, you know, <laughs> so, so we were- Yep, little internal power heads or, yeah. or externally top-mounted. Oh, yeah. Really called top pumps. Um, but yeah, you know, my, my thinking with the flow through the aquarium is that 4X per hour is 100X per day. Yeah. And you cannot convince me, you know, again, unless you are growing food fish or you have an application where you really want to grow some algae or you have a really dirty fish tank. And I feel like it's even more important in freshwater fish, right? Because they'll have some monster fish in there. But 4X uh, per hour is 100X per day. And you just can't convince me that, you know, 200X per day, your tank is going to be that much cleaner. My tanks are already so clean because I don't have all this stuff. I don't have that much rock. I have no sand. And like almost no biomedia on purpose except for the fish acquire. Well, and if you have a lot of flow in the tank, having low flow through your sump allows things to settle there for removal, right? Detritus and all that. Whereas if you had a ton of flow going through your sump, you don't have much of a settlement pattern. So, yeah. And if you have a ton of flow through too, when your power shuts off, your sump has to be so much bigger to accommodate all that extra water that hasn't yet drained into your sump, right? So having just too much flow through your filter system is just there's a a cascading effect of all these other side issues that you might encounter. Um, You know, for example, I'm using a Deltec eFlow to power 600 gallons of display tanks using 60 watts. It's about a thousand gallons per hour 
going through six tanks. Now, they all have their own in-tank filtration, and I don't know exactly how much flow is going through each one, but when you look at them, you're like, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> it's it's enough. Um, I'll tell you the funny story. Through, um, the first love real stories. big tank I bought, you know, was an all-glass 180, and I bought it used off a guy, and he had never um, set it up. I mean, he had multiple tanks in his house. And he bought a 180 and it sat behind his couch and he just finally figured, okay, I'm not going to set up. So the thing never saw water. And I was like, okay, I'll buy it, you know, use good price. Uh, the one mod he made to it before I, I got to it was he cut out all the overflow teeth so that it could handle the crazy amount of flow that he liked to go through his sump. So it had like these <laughs> one inch openings, you know, of where the uh, Aquion or all glass had their overflow teeth and the plastic mm -hmm. overflows. So I had to cover that with like plastic gutter guard, right? Because like all my little fish would have. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it's just, you know, I, I remember thinking like, why? <laughs> why? Just why? Again, you know, with um, overflow boxes, I think there's less thing I have to say about it. But I think they're still selling six foot tanks with two giant internal overflow boxes. You know, these are the Reef Ready Aquions and Perfecto Deep Dimensions. I got a 175 bow front used. The first thing I did is ripped both of those out. And I'm going to be drilling the back. That's going to be a replacement for the fish tank. But I'm like, why is so much of this dedicated to what should be a one-inch hole, a one-inch yeah. drain down planet, to the tank? I think a it's standard planet overflow from Planet Aquariums is like three drains and two returns. And so when I custom ordered mine, I'm like, I just want two drains and one return. And I want you to put it in the corner so I can actually clean it. Um, mm-hmm. And again, yeah. critical thinking, I was like, why is this custom versus what they offer standard? You know, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Like three drains should be custom yeah. for the crazy people. I, well, I mean, unless you're doing, um, not the Herbie, but the, um, what is that other, uh, there's two continuous siphon methodologies. One is the Herbie overflow, which is two, the bean animal. Mm-hmm. Where basically you have your emergency overflow taking on water. And then you have an emergency overflow for your emergency overflow. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, That's overdoing it in my book. That's yeah. if, if you're not driving too much water to your tank, my emergency overflows trickle all it the makes, time. Yeah, well, I that's what I was going to say. It's all easier to tune your continuous siphon if you are willing to let your emergency overflow take a little bit of water, right? So I, mm -hmm. I get it that, you know, you might be like, oh, well, then I really want... That means I don't really have a backup anymore. So I get it, but it just, to me, it seems overkill. Like I, I've never had my primary clog yeah. before siphon, before, before continuous siphon drains. I've never had a, a, a clog, you no. know, like how much funk is going through your tank? Do you have like newspaper floating around? You know, are people throwing cigarette bucks, butts in the back of your overflow box? Like what is growing back there that's going to legitimately clog the first drain, let alone the second one? I've had, a fish, I've had a fish before, you know, clog the first one, but um, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't need two backups for that kind of situation. Like one backup is probably adequate. Right, right. So. And I think that's, I think that might um, kind of address um, this culture of overdoing it. There's a lot of stuff being installed. It's all about that worst case scenario. What mm -hmm. about the what if? But, but why are you spending so much of your energy, time, money, build, and design on something that affects a fraction of a fraction of aquariums, you know, at, at some point in their, in their operation, not the whole thing? 
Yeah. I'm definitely feeling my uh, groove a little bit better now that that first beer hit me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was stumbling for words, but now, now I'm uh, very well lubricated. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's a lot of what ifs and that's, you know, same thing with auto top off machines with like three different, you know, sensors or you know, people have their controllers and monitors for all these what if situations. And I guess I've just really all built my tanks without leaving room for that. What if? Well, so here's my critical thought on that. Um, if you're paranoid about two pipes clogging, so you have a th you're willing to go through the effort of plumbing up a whole third drain. Um, odds are you're you're also thinking about a controller. Just put a float switch in your um, overflow box, right? And so, hey, if that secondary drain fills up, your water level is going to go up. Trigger the float valve, and that can trigger an alarm and shut off your pump. And you didn't have to plumb a whole extra drain to do that. Plus, you got notified, mm -hmm. right? You get a message on your mm -hmm. phone that's like, hey, jerk off, you need to check out your drain in your fish tank. Whereas the third one, you might, the only thing that might clue you in is like the, that the noise of the drains change. So uh, if you're really paranoid, there's like a simpler way to do it, I guess, in my opinion. Yes. Anyways, digression. You're totally right. People, there's all these what if scenarios because they're driving their car 100 miles per hour. Of course, you want that roll cage. Or of course, you want that five point seat belt. Of course, you yeah. want that wraparound airbag. You know, and that's this is the same equivalent that's happening to reef tanks because people think they have to drive them at 100 miles per hour. Um, let's talk about some water changes. I am a it's total extremes. classic water change guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a total uh, extreme, you know, like a classic water change guy. Um, I never really have to do water changes. You know, I'm over here dosing nitrates and encouraging some phosphates with some generous feeding sometimes. Um, but it usually averages out to about 20% once a month or 30% every two months, you know, just depending on what's going on. But it's sometimes I just do it just because I it's just in my <laughs> my soul to give the tank a breath of fresh water. You know, yeah. even if everything's looking awesome, I'm like, you know what, this is what we do. But in the reef aquarium world, I really see a dichotomy. No one is proclaiming that they're doing just normal water changes. Either they're in camp, no water change, or they're in camp, automatic water exchange. I'll never call it water change. It's automatic water exchange because no one is draining and then filling, <laughs> right? And so the, the, again, the, there's this really vocal minority that is driving the discussion of never do water changes or water changes 24 seven. Yeah, I well, I mean, there are people out there. Uh, it's funny when I just run into an aquarium that blows me away. Um, and it's not because of the plumbing or the aquascape, but I just, you know, everything just looks like it's just thriving. I always find that I've inadvertently run into a guy that does like small water changes. And um, frequent water changes. There was a tank recently where I was like, man, that's a great tank. Or he had like three tanks in his house that were great. And then, you know, okay, let's go look through his little YouTube history because he actually makes videos about his tanks and I don't. <laughs> um and it's like the guy did five gallon water changes uh, on on we're talking like 150 gallon tanks, right? So you, and you know you're thinking like, well, what does a five gallon water change do? But but there was something to be said about like he went in there, he would clean out his sumps, right? Get all the detrital matter out. It was very 
it was surgical, if that makes sense. He didn't just remove five gallons of water and re-add five gallons out of it. He used that removal to remove, um, you know, algae that was like problematic, like very surgical. Like I kind of saw that with your um, mm-hmm. your recent nano reef video where you went in there and you went after, you know, some of the baloney and stuff. This is how this guy tackled it. He was just very surgical. And I was like, that's kind of interesting, right? Like a surgical water change that's not about volume and dilution. But if you do those frequently mm-hmm. enough, then the things that you eventually need to dilute are not building up. And so I, that's it's an not, awesome point. Yeah. And, Go ahead. And I don't, I usually do water changes just to suck out detritus. I am more likely to do a water change because I want to clean the sump, which we're going to do all next week because we're going to have some visitors, <laughs> and then because the tank needs a water change. So that's a really good point about the guy doing these surgical water changes to remove offending matter, offending material, more so than trying to you know get ahead of nutrients or something like that. Yeah, and I'm not preaching his method you because I don't do that, right? But like his sand bed looked immaculate. Really? Right? You don't do that? No. I I have this <laughs> everywhere. Um, oh, but I also view detritus not to counter my own argument, but I mean a lot of detritus is inorganic. You know, it's um it's ugly, but it's just there. You there's, know, there's different types of de- detritus. Yeah. Also, you have yeah. some of that really fine brown stuff that's obviously just kind of poop in the corner of your sump that hasn't and in my tank decomposing. up in these corners of. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my tank up, they got these piles of detritus that are like mostly sand and like bits of coralline and stuff that's just kind of fallen from the rocks. Yeah. Like that gray matter, I, that, that to me looks like, eh, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, but I, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I, you know, I, I am, I don't like automated water changes where you change a gallon a day. So I do have an AWC set up, but I just, I do it so that I can mix up a batch and then... Um, it's like semi-manual, yeah, semi-automatic. I push a button, press a button and, and I happens. go back to my day job working remotely at home and join a Zoom call and the thing does it for me. And then mm-hmm. maybe quarterly, I go old school with a gravel vac and stuff. So For sure. If I was a freshwater aquarist, I would have a system like that, right? Oh, Where yeah. you could turn a couple valves and just have it drain to a certain amount and then fill up a couple valves and the you know, tank would refill. But you had a good point about people who don't do water changes. Do you remember what it was? No. How hard people, how the length oh, yeah. people go to, to not oh, you yeah. elaborate on that. Well, it it's just, yeah, it's like, there's so much analysis and deep thought and intent and gadget buying all to, um, circumvent water changes right and all these methodologies the gymnastics that's a good way to put it gymnastics of just going so far out of your way to not do water changes as if we don't all need just a little bit of physical exercise right (laughs) (laughs) right like i uh i i eat one meal a day and it's this nutritious shake and it's like or you know just get a little exercise every once in a while but yeah it just um again it's just it's odd, you know, when you think about every little product, right? Carbon, okay. Um, the thing that carbon does, you could also solve with a water change. Ozone, same thing. The water clarity abilities of UV, water changes, you get you pretty close to that too, right? Um, Sanjay was just asking about different nitrate reduction methods and why do you think that one is more effective than the other? And I think it was um, 
sorry to name drop, but Craig Bingman, right? Great chemist guy, major contributor to the hobby that was like, why isn't water changes on the list? And I was like, that's a really great point. You know, it was like overlooked in terms, not overlooked. I'm sure Sanjay was comparing methodologies, but but just this idea of like, oh, I have a sulfur denitrator or you can do water changes. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you have an 800 gallon tank, I get it. But, you know, we're. If you're your public aquarium level, right? Yeah. You know, 400 gallons plus and you're you're staring down the, uh, you know, a, a really substantial cost in salt mix. First of all, maybe you shouldn't have a 400 gallon, but up to above a certain size. I understand that ICB water testing and some of those other things help to realign your water chemistry without the expense of doing, you know, big water changes. But once again, people are comparing the techniques for a 500 to a 1000 gallon tank to their 50 gallon tank. You know, it's like, that's the thing about the nano tanks. It's like, you don't have to test or dose, just change five gallons of water. And you've just reset it to, you know, the two month mark in terms of like, you know, good water quality. And, but otherwise you can, you know, that's the thing that kills me too. is like lots of bells and whistles and nano tanks. I'm like, dude, just do a water change or oh, yeah. figure out a way to have a drain on your tank and that, you know, and a top off door. You can turn a valve, water drains out, turn another valve, water fills back up. Right. So that your water change is done automatically and boom, that takes care of your dosing that you don't need a protein skimmer. You don't need an algae scrubber and on and on and on. But yeah, the, the gymnastics that people go through to not do water changes are comical. So I'll say two things. One is uh, when you brought up the freshwater example, uh, I remember meeting a guy here in Georgia who was a freshwater hobbyist, uh, more so than marine hobbyist, but he would buy reef ready tanks. He would plumb the return line to like a, like a, um, a pump that had a reservoir of, you know, chlorinated or no, I think he just had his uh, tap going through um, some carbon blocks like you did. Carbon but, block. But then his drains all drained into like his plumbing drain. So his idea of a water change mm-hmm. was like opening up a valve and then new water would trickle through the return lines and the dirty. And, you know, you get some good water would go down the drain, too. But um, and I thought, man, that's pretty smart because he had tanks all over his house, but they were all plumbed because he had an unfinished basement. Um, the other thing about water changes that I, I will always say is that. You know, when you wash your car and then you're driving around town in that washed car and you feel pretty damn good about it, you just feel mm-hmm. good driving like your cleaned up car. Yeah. There's absolutely. something great about a water change, man. Like you do a water change, you clean the sump up, you just, you know, everything's sparkly. I mean, I guess this is if the salt doesn't nuke your tank because of all the stuff in the n- reef news lately, but there's just something feel good about doing a water change on your tank. Like, you know, you just feel like ah. it's communion. Yeah. It's communion with your aquarium, even if there's nothing to do. Yeah. Right? Your skimmer's coming fine, whatever, change out the cup, your return pump's doing good. You don't fill up your top off for your your uh, dosing reservoirs, suck out a little detritus from the sump. But yeah, just the act of doing that and seeing, you know, slightly clearer water, a little bit more polyp extension. That is the you know, the activity for me that is just an integral part of the hobby and it always will be. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we should definitely talk about lights because I have almost never seen a tank with too little lighting on it. It is just so rare these days. You know, everybody's buying these $500,000, $800,000 LED lights and then running them at 30%. And, you know, there's almost no such thing as too much light. I've seen every reef animal except for pectinia in full sunlight. Right. Almost everything it's, you can have, 
too much light for the flow. You can have too much light for the temperature. You can have too much light for the trace elements. You know, when you're driving that much energy into a system, you got to have a lot of things to balance it out. But yeah, it's just really rare that you see a tank that has almost the exact perfect amount of lighting on it. Yeah. And I mean, you could say perfect is debatable, um, but uh, it, there's, there's so much overkill in lighting. Um, mm-hmm. I have a random theory about lighting that I was going to bring up in the original subject that we were going to talk about, but it, we can talk about it now for two seconds and elaborate on more is I always wonder if a, if a coral, let's say a coral has a suggested par range of, well, let's take an LPS, right? Some probably suggested par ranges uh, between 50 micromoles and 100. You know, that might be something that somebody suggests. I always wonder if it's better to go on the lower end of that range, right? For sure. And that goes back to freshwater planet tanks, right? When you overlight a planet tank, um, the the plants that you're trying to grow can't take advantage of that extra energy, but fast-growing microalgae can. Yeah. And when you mm-hmm. tone it down to like a much lower light level, then that slower growing plant is still able to do its thing, but you haven't given the competitive advantage to the microalgae. And I've always wondered, because mm-hmm. there's arguments that bluer light creates less algae problems. So the people with the Windex tanks have less algae problems than the daylight guys. They just don't see it. They don't just see it as much. That's probably true. But I also wonder if it's just like, well, yeah, you also have less par maybe, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. that's just something that I, I've always wondered is <laughs> it like- It is so funny. They're like, my light's really blue. I don't have algae. Well, it's like, yeah, okay. Your par level's average about 75 micromoles. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing people don't really consider when they- Think about lighting intensity over corals and like the sun goes up and then it comes down and it's only for those few one or two hours and when it's directly overhead they get maximum light now what if the coral is south facing or north facing or you know just on the side of a of a hill yeah. the sun is going over and then they're not getting any direct light you know then there's just diffused light and indirect light coming from the, the scattering from the water yeah right and so there's just not enough consideration like that i saw a crazy reef when I was in Palau. It was lobos and pectinias and lobos and lobos and lots of LPSs in snorkeling depth right next to the edge of the rainforest. And by my accounts, because I wasn't there all day, I'm like, this reef maybe gets like four hours of direct light every day. Because, you know, it's like growing right next to a rainforest that was, you know, coming off a giant hill. But it was like such an amazing shallow water LPS reef. It really, like I already knew some of the things I just talked about as far as like the dynamic light regime. But seeing that shallow water reef growing in that zone, I'm like, oh my God, that just really opens up a whole different uh, uh, consideration. Not to mention turbid water. Right. Yeah. Some of the coolest corals I've ever seen were in 20, 30 feet in water that no diver would ever want to go into, you know, five, 10 foot visibility. That's not what divers are looking for. But for me, it was like a scavenger hunt because yeah. you couldn't see more than 10 <laughs> feet away. So you had to cover a lot of ground and then you'd be like, oh my God, look at that crazy, super thin branched acro in 20 feet of water. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just a lot more to consider with lights. Um, everybody's, you know, people who complain about, um, 
the, the, the price of the hobby, you will probably have more success buying previous gen lights or one model smaller and spreading that light out instead of, you know, lusting over the, the great, the latest and greatest flagship light, um, that, uh, you know, is top of the pack or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I think, and I, I think you, I think it's nice to embrace different zones in your tank, right? Don't, I don't mm-hmm. need to bathe my tank in 300 par. Um, I can have some, what? huh? Uh, micromoles of par. 300 what? Um, but it's, it's that just, yeah. And, and then that goes back to the, the, the simplicity of factor of like too much plumbing, right? Like I'd rather have a float switch than, than a third drain pipe. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to plug in six lights over a six foot tank. Like that just causes wiring nightmare. You know, I miss or the you days where I plugged and in get you one some short custom cables. <laughs> it's, but you still need six outlets, right? Um, yeah, no, or an right. extension. Hey, actually, cord. yeah, actually, they do make uh, you know dual and triple plug uh, power cords. So you can plug one in, uh, one power cord in, and then have three of those going to power supplies. But no, I'm just like really? defeating. Yes. You just blew my mind. <laughs> um, so one trend that I do like about the lighting is people using a lot more strip lighting because they're not very intense and a lot more diffuse. And I know it kind of pushes your button as far as having a lot of the different things to plug in. I am right there with you. Um Reef Delight's Nico bars are pretty cool because they can, you can buy, it's like kind of expensive if you buy just one strip light. Cause I think no matter what you get a driver for four lights or maybe there's different kits, but you can get one driver with like four, um, connectors, right? So I'm using one right now with two lights and I could add another two more if I wanted to, but only one thing to plug in, but you know, who's not guilty of using too much lighting, the coral farmers. If you talk to the guys that have the best zoanthids and encrusting corals and lower light stuff and shrooms, they will per- unanimously tell you that they have very broad lighting and pretty low intensity. You know, I'm thinking of uh, legendary corals. Um, uh, oh my God. Uh, not eye catching corals. Um, eye candy corals, maybe. Um, but these guys that do the encrusting corals and the zoanthids, if they do it well, um, they will tell you, if you go to reef shows like reef stock coming up in Denver next weekend, um, talk to them, ask them what they're growing their corals under. And, uh, very rarely is anyone going to tell you that there are over 200 micromoles on most of the common stuff and euphelias, um, that is most popular in the reef aquarium hobby. You know, that, that super highlight stuff. We're talking about clams. We're talking about highlight acros. Anemones. And there's a lot of lower light acros and anemones. Um, yeah. So, at, you know, if you're at any reef show, go ahead and ask, you know, the person you're buying from what general intensity they're using, what fixture they're using, what setting they're using. And I think that a lot of those farmers, they have to learn, right? They have to learn through trial and error and making mistakes. And a lot of them have, um, kind of converged on having much lower intensity coming from a wider uh, light field. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point because um, years ago, the only coral that anybody was excited about was SPS and everything else was beginner coral. But now you have niches of people that are going crazy over zoanthids, going crazy over rare mushrooms, the LPS. You cannot grow stylosinella in bright light. Right. 
You cannot propagate it. You, you, sure, you can grow it. You can acclimate it. But yeah, you want to be good with Cytosinella, you're going to have to have some really diffuse lighting. Same thing with Blastomusa. Goniopora. Um, Lords man. can handle more light. Or Goniopora. Yep. However you want to pronounce it. There's $500 Amazeballs Goniopora's now, and there's people going nuts over them. But you don't hear people talking about like 50 to 100 par, right? Or micromoles apart. They don't. It's interesting, like, there's still, like, you, you see guys going crazy with these corals, and they've got, like, a ton of flow and a ton of light, and it's just, it's an interesting point you're making is that on the forums, you don't see a discussion about light reduction and light and flow reduction How to accommodate. Can you go? I mean, that's what How this water box I just set up is, I mean, there's barely any flow in the tank, and I've got the lights... I have a par meter, not not the not the best one for the job, but uh, I've got my lighting like below 100 par, and it's just an experiment that I may below feel what? miserably at. <laughs> 100 micromoles. Yes. <laughs> you could just say a hundred, and then we'll, we're both on the same. Hundo. Page. I'll just say a hundo. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think you know we've made our point about the lighting. Um, you can get by with a lot less than you think for everything except for Acropora humilis and some you know certain species of staghorn corals and plating corals. And actually, that's kind of the fun sometimes is seeing how much how little light you can get away with because you might have a really open growth form that will transform the coral into something more unique than everybody else who's grown it in very bright light. Well, and I like anemone keepers because some of the hardcore carpet guys, they'll light the rest of their tank reasonably, and then they'll get a spotlight for mm -hmm. their carpet anemone. It just blasts the carpet, right? Um, and I think that's kind of cool. Like, they're not blasting the whole tank. Um, anyway, yeah, enough about lights. That's another thing, but that's the next level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I do love. Maybe we in a future session we can talk about next level stuff that actually makes sense. Um Let's see. Food. I mean, I think that's an easy one, man. Uh, you know, unless your nitrates are zero, then you're overfeeding. You're overfeeding your tank. You know, oh. I see a lot of people keeping um, reef tanks like fish tanks. You know, starting the tank out with fish and you're feeding the fish. And so by the time you start adding corals, your nitrates are already around 50, your, your phosphates around one or two, and then you turn on the lights to more reef levels. And then you've got an explosion of, of algae and funk. You haven't even been through the uglies, right? Because you had like kind of fish level lighting. And um, there's just no reason to cycle a tank with, with fish anymore. There's so many products. I literally have a big old jug of ammonia for different projects that I'm doing. Um, but for, for sure, people are feeding way too much, and that will lead to a buildup of detritus, and that will, if you have a lot of detritus, that actually can build up and uh, kind of encourage some bacterial uh, problems on your corals, and those are incredibly hard to diagnose. That's that's a toughie right yeah, there. Yeah, that's a really good, well, we'll save that one for the advanced discussion, but yeah, the 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 possibility of bacterial infections and, and impacting like an LPS collection, right? So Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, you know, you've seen folks who have a pretty, you know, okay looking reef tank, but then a fish population that to me would be like, I wouldn't even keep that many fish in a fish only tank, you know, and you're adding just so much food and you're having problems. Well, it would just be so much easier if you had separate tanks. You know, you really love your fish. Just, you know, kind of pick one. Which one is your favorite and then prioritize it. You've done a really good job of like describing how, you know, some of your fish come first. And if they eat certain corals, well, all right, those corals are written off. This is why you're setting up other tanks, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I, I, 
you know, that tank is such a hodgepodge now that uh, knowing that you're coming to visit, like now I've got stress about that because I'm like, you're going to look at that tank. That tank's such a hodgepodge because, you know. I have a kitchen sink reef tank. Yeah, that's the I don't perfect, even know what to call it. It's the, <laughs> I call it like, you know, your PetSmart freshwater community uh, aquarium, community, tropical community fish tank equivalent of a reef tank. <laughs> now it's just mm-hmm. a hodgepodge of... But, you know, it's in the busy part of the house and there's stuff in there that everybody likes and life goes on. So, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah. Um, but speaking of coral, uh, you know, we've talked about collectoritis and just too many corals, right? Too much coral, not letting the corals grow out into mature colonies, not having the patience to do that. But then the other part that I find funny when I, you know, peruse forums to um, just kill some time is like, I've got this 180 gallon tank. I've got 500 different types of corals in it. And this heliofungi I have is dying. Uh, what's going on with my tank? What mass changes do I need to make to my tank? Because this one coral is going bad. And it's like, there again, there's not a surgical approach of like, well, shoot, where did I put the coral? Is the coral, you know, is there something about that coral where it's placed? Or, you know, am I giving it too much light? And, and you know, I've always sort of argued that I don't think mixed reefs are that hard. And I think you feel like in a way they are because it's hard to find zones of low flow, high flow, low light, high light. And uh, so I'll give you that. And and then maybe that's what the issue is. But it's weird how one coral not doing well in their tank makes them want to overhaul everything. And I think you and I have had the I think experience where sometimes we just can't keep a specific kind of coral in a tank. And like there's a hard... There's no easy explanation why. Let's use an extreme example. Yeah. In any one of my tanks, I have, let's just say I have 10 frags of LPS over here, 10 frags of zoanthus over there, and then 10 acro colonies right next to each other. Five of the acro colonies are always doing better than the other five. One of them is explosive growth and one of them is really stagnant. Yeah. You know, one of them just like growing out of control and one's dying in the same exact zone. In the same conditions, you know, I talked about my maize balls dying surrounded by three other giant colonies of Ghanis that were not touching it. And it's just like, don't pull your hair out. You yeah. see, it's, if, it's, if it's literally, you know, surrounded by corals that are thriving, that are closely related, that, that specimen, it's not even that coral strain, but that specimen is compromised somehow. And it's one of those things you might never figure it out. Yeah. Don't kill yourself trying to figure it out. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, certain species of branching corals might uh, have a consistent uh, recession from the base or something. Oh my God, I'm the first one to cut off a good piece and throw away the rest. And just like, all right, reset, 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 however many times it takes for it to, to take. Um, so yeah, definitely. It's not too, maybe too many corals, but yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to keep everything within the same water volume in the same tank than a more, more narrow range. Well, but take the good information with the, take the good with the bad, right? Uh, don't overhaul your methodology or your filtration or your additives or anything because you're failing in one department. If the other department of corals is kicking butt and growing, Right. Like then just, mm-hmm. I mean, I brought up heliofungi as an example because, you know, I've been obsessing. I, I don't have a, a one with issues, but I've been obsessing over. I've had s- failure issues with that coral, but I always put them on the recommended sand bed. And there's all this documentation about it, but don't put them on rocks. And then I start to see like certain people have success with them on rocks 
which is counterintuitive. And so my brain starts to go down the rabbit hole of why and, you know, is the sand irritating the tissue underneath somehow where maybe there's less irritants if they're on like a solid surface. But that's like, I'm I not can, over. I can split the difference. Yeah. Go for it. I have seen a ton of uh, long tentacle plates in the wild. And I've only seen giant ones on the sand. Okay. I have seen so many long tentacle plates on, in the reef. It usually semi-sheltered, right? They're not like getting pounded by flow, but usually kind of coastal zones, uh, you know, slightly turbid water. And it's just always catches your eye because it's like a torch coral that's just more out there. And you look closer, and you're like, oh, that's a fungi. You know, that's a, that's a heliofungia. And it's only once they reach a certain size that you see these big like bucket lid dinner plate sized dudes sitting on the substrate of some kind with a whole ecosystem of shrimp and pipefish and small crabs like you know, all living in it. But they're usually really big where, when they're like that. Did you see the the video from um, uh, Mile High Reefers, Scott Anderson? That's just the take one that for triggered. Half a year? That's the one that triggered because he's had success with one on rock work. And I was like, you'd, you'd huh. think that would have been the, one of the first things to go. Yeah. And he just came back and I was like, that thing had, but it, it does reflect where I've seen a lot of long tentacle plates. You know, I think there's some certain spots in um, Palau where there's just like fields of this stuff and enclosed lagoons that get super hot, no flow, very little water exchange. And it's just like a long tentacle plate paradise. So maybe to keep long tentacle plate, you actually just have to put it in a dumpy aquarium. <laughs> no, I'm well, not saying Scott's tank was dumpy. I'm just yeah. saying the, the reef environments, but that was one thing that was really striking. Big ups to Scott for, for the, sharing his experiences because it triggered you know got like me you thinking, and me man. To, to see like how of all the corals that suffered long tentacle plate was not one of those i um you know the two little fishy stack rocks right cut on both sides mm -hmm. i ordered like five pounds of that just like a little you know a small amount uh because i'm i have a six inch heliofungi that's doing okay but I th i'm thinking of putting it on a piece of flat stacks rocks in my sand bed so it's elevated off the sand bed a bit and just see if it seems happier, right? But uh, yeah, Mile High Reefer, like that's who caused me to start thinking about that because I have had past experience of failure with heliofungia on a sand bed. So I have never bought one because I've kept them so many times at fish stores and there was never a rhyme or reason to the one that was going to do well and the one that was just going to yeah. melt down in a couple days. Um, but yeah, Scott's experience definitely encouraged me. And because you mentioned two little fishies, Julian Sprung might have a little surprise when he comes to Reefstock next week because I was looking at a list of uh, WYSIWYG corals from Australia and I found a thing that he's been looking for forever. So hopefully he's nice. Excellent. <laughs> but here's an interesting thing. You can actually do some citizen science about the long tentacle plate. I love this tangent. I love it. We're going all the way. Let's do it. <laughs> you could do some citizen science on this and just do, you know, image searches of long tentacle plate. I would that, yeah. <laughs> in the wild and compare the size of the ones that you see within the reef and the size of the ones that you see on the sand bed. Right, because that is going to be very informative as to where that difference lies. You know, so I've never I, seen them in the wild, but I did a lot of Google image searching because my brain went the same way. But it's interesting because I fungia is not heliofungias, but just regular old fungias. Um, I've always kept those on the sand bed, and and they do fine on the sand bed. I've never had issues with them. But when I have seen them diving and snorkeling, they're always in rubble, like just just 
you know, large chunks of rocks and they're just like tilted and they're just, you're almost uh -huh. like somebody dropped them there and you feel bad for them. Like, oh, who put you there? You don't belong there. But then you're like, well, mm -hmm. no, that's where you are. Like nobody put you there. And, um, and I've never seen them on a sand bed. So, um, yeah, I mean, you probably have. Yeah, so you've been compare the sizes, the ones you see growing off of rocks and the ones you see in the sand bed. That's a good, uh, that's food for thought. I'll, I'll think about that. Okay, well, I think we have a couple more topics of uh, overdoing it to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about dosing. I have never, not once, got into trouble underdosing a tank. Yeah, there was, um, I don't want to pick on the person if he's a listener, um, but there was somebody that was struggling with corals and fish and then um, started to think, well, he needed to shift gears and change like to a different methodology. And the methodology was one that required a lot of dosing because he was having all kinds of, you know, um, failure to launch essentially in all his corals. Mm -hmm. And I was just reading it like, man, if I just had one of those weird mystery tanks where corals were just constantly failing on me, I would start to strip it out, like strip all things out, right? Like throw every additive into the trash. Yeah, like like the whole mm -hmm. 30 diet for your tank, right? Like I would go back to old school water changes, keep the skimmer clean, keep your alkalinity and calcium. Huh? Calcwasser to start? Yeah. Calcwasser? Yeah. Just, just, just basic calcwasser. Keep things but, in know, an acceptable range and, and and then start to see thing, how things go, you know? Maybe do an ICP test just to see if there's just some... You know, because I mean, like, you know, you hear about the magnet leaching or like something, you know, but yeah, it, it just, it, it blew my mind that it was like, wait, you're going to go try something like Zeofit or Moonshiners or like, that's, that's not the path you should go on, man. Like you're in a, a mm -hmm. path of death, like go, <laughs> go re remove variables. Know, we've answered a lot of questions online. We've participated in bulletin boards quite a bit. I worked in an aquarium store for decades. Never did somebody come in and said, oh, I'm having problems with my tank because I'm not dosing. It, you know, almost no coral will die if you don't dose right. anything. They will, you know, grow slower. And sure, they will, you know, some corals will definitely grow a lot faster and have elevated kill alkalinity. But you're going to get a whole lot more trouble if you go up to 10 real fast than if you drop down to 5 real fast. You know, and so that's one of those other things. I mean, there's a plenty, there was a whole generation of saltwater aquarium keepers who just did their water changes and threw in a scoop of Tropic Marin biocalcium, you know, once a month and didn't bother about testing or whatever. I know I, because I'm always experimenting with the kind of just new additives, new, uh, um, formulas and, you know, esoteric exotic elements. I don't get into trouble not doing those things. I get into trouble by dipping my toes into, you know, this weird yeah. end of the pool. And so it's just one of those things like you're probably dosing too much. You're probably overdoing it. You know, trying to hit those specific numbers, right? That's not what I'm talking about, but just dosing too much. Like you said, you have this um, infinite matrix of uh, so a problem that you can't solve if you're throwing so much at it. Um, and so, yeah, if you dose a lot less, you will get a lot less trouble than if you dose more. This is, this is a fact. I'll fight anybody on that one. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I'm not an expert on every methodology or, or all things reefing, but, um, 
I will always tinker and I always like to try new things. Uh, and I'm still on the hunt for an additive that changes my life. But I can sit here, maybe the one exception to this would be amino acids, but I can sit here and confidently say there's nothing in my 25 years of reef keeping that became so apparently beneficial that I just forever stuck with that additive, right? I would say um, the saline fruit amino acids did blow my mind, and I do like two little fishies, um, I mean, Acropower. Um, and this is what I love about Acropower. But you can it, dose I, it, you could not dose it. When you dose it, yeah, you see results. When you're not dosing it, whatever. Your cores are still there. They're still fine. Yeah, They're still growing. It, it, Maybe not quite as fast. And it, I love that it's just such a non-critical thing to add. If I forgot to order how much it, to add. right? Like life would go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People exactly ask me right. how much to add. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Just don't go over this much because then you're just kind of wasting it, you know? And that's one of the things I do love about that relative to some of the others where you're just like this really strictly regimented um, prescription of what to do, like zeal of it. I'm like, oh, that, that's... that's I think that time has passed. Even the Zeovit guys, man, they're not following the recipe anymore. I don't see those Zeovit yeah, tanks now you get anymore. Like Moonshiner and all this other stuff, and um, which are hybrids, I guess, of the Triton method. But I mean, you and I have known each other a long time, and nothing has bubbled up in our constant tinkering of additives that I said, like, hey, I discovered this 15 years ago, and I will not run a reef tank without it. You know, like in terms of additives, don't get me like, you know, not, we're not talking. Absolutely. Like there's no magic potion that has just changed my world that I will continue to buy and I would lose my head if it, they stop making it. Like there's nothing right. out there. I'd be very sad if there was no acropower, but yeah. life would go on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's where, that's the only one where I was like, you know, it's, it's beneficial, but it's not um, necessary. Right. Like I, I, I do it's not like. required. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and the only reason I think, well, so you have much more experience with it. The thing that changed my world about amino acids was because there was a time before Dustin Dorton shared with us all like, hey, you know, this dog flea medicine kills red bugs, right? There was a time where all us SPS nuts had to deal with red bugs and we had no way to solve and kill them without kill, nuking the tank. And Interceptor, is that what we used? Yeah. Yes, sir. And the only thing that kept your tank afloat was saline for at the time, their amino acids. If you added that to your tank, for some reason, your corals it made up the difference. It could co they could cohabitate with these parasitic little, um, you know, critters, and and so like that was like astounding to me that like oh my god, I had this bottle and my corals turned a corner, right? And they were able mm -hmm. to like cohabitate with these little red bugs all over them, tagastes or whatever they're called these days, but. Um, but yeah, I, that said, so like in 15 or sorry, 25 years, not a single bottle like that. I have to go to my local fish store and buy on a monthly basis. I mean, two part, okay. Two parts, probably the one, if you call that an additive, but anyway, mm -hmm. it's, there's something to be said for that, right? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see, uh, nitrates. I have never seen a tank fail because the nitrates were too high. I'm sure, I'm sure that there's a point, but our test kits don't go that high. And I feel like once your nitrates get up above a certain level, it forces denitrification in ways that we don't even really know about. Cause I've never seen somebody's nitrates over 200. 
you know, and that would be a fish aquarium. Yeah, you're going to have some fish problems, but not necessarily some coral problems. And what, what I'm trying to get at, though, is people uh, demonize the nitrates so much to so many extents that they'll have, you know, some denitrification process, um, maybe a denitrator, a bigger protein skimmer, various kinds of algae scrubbers, various kinds of tips and tricks, you know, trying to address the nitrates and it just really takes away from the enjoyment of their tanks. But, you know, except for like, you know, some HLE insensitive fish like uh, regal blue tangs and certain zebrasoma species, what else is there? I don't, I don't see this massive detriment of, of crazy high nitrates. Once again, you know, up to about a 200 gallon tank, it's pretty easy to do a 25% water change and put a serious dent in, in the, uh, your nitrate levels. You know, it's, it's very hard to get nitrates up so high that you're really actually losing corals. I'm, like I said, I'm sure there's some examples and maybe back in the day, there was more examples of those nitrates getting way out of control for someone who had a, you know, a saltwater aquarium with some corals in it and they didn't realize. Um, but it's just, it doesn't have to be as, um, hated as it is. And like I said, now I'm going around, like mixing up my own potassium nitrate and tossing into a few tanks that I know constantly, you know, bottom out to zero. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I can say first that I probably am not qualified to have an opinion on it because I've never had, um, high nitrates. So I don't know, but, um, the only thing I've ever really encountered that was okay. You know, like that, that makes sense is, um, back when fish only aquariums were pretty popular and you had the angel nut people, like I'm an angel nut. Um, a lot of them would anecdotally report that when nitrates were too elevated, their angels would stop eating. Mm -hmm. Um, that could just be that the water was crappy to begin with. Like if you have high nitrates, the water is probably polluted in many other ways too, right? And a water, in and then they ways. did a water change and their fish ate again, right? So, so, so that's actually an awesome point that you bring up. There's a lot of carryover, yeah, from freshwater, from fish tanks, from ponds. These ideas that get um, ins- inscribed in reefers' minds that don't necessarily apply to our corals. Like I said, I mean, I'm sure there's a extreme case out there of someone uh, cracking a buck fifty on their uh, nitrate nitrate, but you just don't see this in everyday life. And a lot of that demonization is a carryover from the saltwater fish tank days, where certain fish, you know, it, at very high levels, nitrates behaves like nitrite behaves like ammonia, and uh, you know, again, just go back to doing a simple water change and you're good. But yeah. it's just, you know, people putting, throwing, installing all these what ifs and all these parachutes for things that have not necessarily happened yet. Um, you know, just pay more attention to your corals. Do you have any other um, points of like people overdoing it? I mean, for me still, it's like too much light, too much sumps, too much gears, too much toys. And it, like, I don't mind any of that if the reef tank really reflects the amount of effort that you put into the back end. No, if your I, reef tank is just so dope, and then you have all the bells and whistles. There's one tank that comes to mind. It's uh, that good dude Wesley in Germany who's an elevator repair technician. Yeah, and that guy, his tank looked apart, and he had all the bells and whistles. Lots of stuff he built himself. Um, uh, yeah, but I just want people to pay more attention to driving the car than tuning the engine. Yeah. I mean, um, just, uh, I guess not just nitrates in general. I mean, we're, we're trying to close this out in general, but, uh, I don't have a phosphate test kit. 
Um, I, <laughs> I do have a nitrate test kit, but I think it's expired. Um, and that's not to brag. It just means that like, I, I've never had to use those metrics to fix anything. Now, granted, I don't have a crazy fish collection, right? I don't feed tablespoons of, uh, food. So maybe that's part of it, but it just, um, I don't, I, I don't, I, yeah, like I feel like I'm you're right barking up you. the wrong tree if that's where I you have, think your answers are. I have nitrate and phosphate test kits that we measure to make sure they don't go too low. Except for my fish tank. In my fish tank, I don't have an automatic filter. We're all on there yet. That's a project for this year when they get moved over to the bow front. But, we're definitely going to have the filter roll. But I test phosphate and nitrates to understand their consumption and try to prevent them from being at zero for too long. And I'll give you that, but that that's what how I, as a victim of this overdoing it, I, I, I am guilty of it too, is that I noticed my glass wasn't getting dirty very often. And, um, you know, and then I started to wonder about coral growth. Um, in a previous tank, I did see some benefits in um, dosing potassium nitrate. Um, I saw a lot more expansion in corals. So I did whip out that expired test kit. <laughs> And I tested and my nitrates were zero and I started dosing calcium nitrate from ESV because my potassium, I did test my potassium out of curiosity and it was good. And I was like, well, I don't want to add potassium if my potassium is good, but you know, I don't really care about calcium. Um, and then my cool crushed coral bed that always stays white because my tangs graze it like it's live rock started to grow these funky little red turfs and stuff. And and then I was like, ah, what, what's going on? Oh, what did I change? Oh, I started dosing nitrates. And it's just like I overdid it, right? Mm -hmm. And in the end, I really wasn't having any problems. I just I was chasing a little more growth. We're just we're, we're chasing perfection. And you know, in I all honesty. Shot myself in the this, foot, yeah. This entire hobby is trying to achieve an unattainable perfection. First of all, the one thing you have to realize is all these corals, they are – you know, just fighting to stay alive on the reef, right? The reef, most reef environments are also not an awesome place for corals to grow, right? They have to deal with predators and pests and grazing and com competition. So our reef tanks are already more of a paradise in most cases than many reef environments. Um, we've talked about this already before, but, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's actually the fun and I, and, I, and I get it. And that's why I've made the mistake over and over and over of overdoing it when I'm trying some new additive or some new supplement or some new technique or some new lights. And it takes a lot of effort and restraint to just be like, go slow. Just go slow. Just take it easy. Let's do this over two months, not over two days. Because, you know, the, the dangers of overshooting far outweigh, uh, you know, the potential benefits of, you know, whatever it is I'm trying to achieve. So, like I said, I just want people to know, like, we're the biggest gearheads. We love gear, especially when it's used well. And every one of these things we've chided, um, they have their place. But just because, you know, the most upvoted tank on the forum has, you know, a nuclear reactor of, of pipes and plumbing and gadgets and doodads in the back, that doesn't, that really is almost to me a counter indicator of future success of the reef tank. I mean that. Every time I see a, an overthought, overbuilt, overengineered uh, backhand sump or whatever, it, to me, I've just seen it so many times. You're like almost guaranteed that that person is going to be selling that tank in like two years. 
because they've had so many struggles because there's so many levers and dials to pull when you know at the end of the day it's just like hit a certain salinity keep it at a certain temperature don't let your levels get too low or too high and most corals that you know are worth looking at are going to be fine with that yeah and i think the hobby is a lot more interesting if you uh, adjust your mindset because I've had a lot of friends that got into it and they love the build phase and the technical whiz phase. And then when the tank goes on autopilot, then they're bored and then they sell the tank. <laughs> and, or they well, why build do you think I have 12 the, tanks? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're all guilty. The build be is the best one. part. But man, if you can kind of fake it till you believe it or whatever and get into the biology and the coral species and the, um, oh shoot, you know, why did that guy's helofungi on a rock do so well? And all this advice is about sand beds. And there's a lot of fun in getting into a heated debate about stuff like that at your aquarium conference um, bar or restaurant, right? Like post show, there's a lot of fun to discuss that. Um, you know, some of my favorite discussions are usually about uh, stuff like that. Just, um, but yeah, so, and there's a lot of good analysis there, but it's just that, yeah, that we are our worst enemy, right? Like our constant desire to tinker, mess with stuff, try something new, overkill, overkill, overkill. We need a shirt. We need a shirt that says something to that effect. Like, stop messing with it. But, you know, I know that a lot of... Um, uh, diehard hobbyists these days are really tuned in to all the gears and the bells and the whistles. And I don't want to alienate anyone, not just no, I love that stuff. viewership, yep. but because we just want people to understand that there for sure, there's one or two things you can cut out of your reef tank and you will never miss it. You know, so maybe that's a little personal challenge for 2022, you know, just pull one thing off. Maybe you can install something else. Can you run your tank on four plugs? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you know, Ali when is with his three or four yeah. plug reef tank and it's just amazing and beautiful and there's no tricks and there's no magics. You know, that's what uh, we aspire to. I do enjoy the gadgets, but especially when they perform, a, you know, a function better than the next gadget. That's what it always is for me. I so. think, you know, th we, we fell off the wagon with the book recommendations, but, and my bad, um, but everyone should watch the Reef Builders video of um, Ali's store. What is it? Amazing Reefs and something. Uh, Japanese style reef tank. Yeah, but what is his store called? Uh, Amazing Aquariums and Reefs. Yeah. In Tustin, California. But I think I've got one or two videos. A more recent one was I just featured a store, but a really old one. It's like almost a million views. Yeah. That was a Japanese style uh, reef scape but or something. But the more recent one, you go to every tank and, you know, he just describes, okay, yeah, it's got a sump and a skimmer. And Yep. <laughs> um, but I love that. I've watched it like 30 times, you know. That Aww. and um, – your uh, video go, of go Sanjay's 29-gallon soft coral tank. I love that tank. <laughs> Dude, people can't believe that one. They don't want they, they don't want to believe that yeah. one. Yeah. I've, I've watched that a bazillion times. That and Julian's tank, of course, you did one of his uh, tank. I just like the that the natural vibe of that tank. But, yeah. Oh, I'm overdue for a visit to Miami. But um, cool, man. I thought it was a really important discussion. And we are down to talk gear with anyone out there. You know, that's kind of how Mark and I's friendship was built. Um, but it's just, I think, almost all of us. And I'm the first one to raise my hand and say I'm guilty of overdoing it, overshooting it, and overthinking it. So, um, you know, the thing about uh, the one or two things you can plug on your reef tank this year, I hope to see a lot of you guys um, in Orlando for 
Aquashella this weekend, so literally two days after this gets published. And uh, the weekend after that, March 5th and 6th, at Reefstock here in Denver. I know I've got a lot of local peeps who listen to Reef, Reef Therapy, so shout out to all my Mile High Reefers. Make sure to come up and say hi at uh, Reefstock. And um, we'll probably be back with another session in two weeks, shortly after Reefstock, talking all about what happened. Sounds good, man. All right, Mark, thanks for joining me on another session of Reef Therapy, and we'll see everyone on the next one. All right, take care. Bye, guys.